Welcome to our evening uh, service. It's good uh, to be together, uh, and it's really nice, uh, I'm sure uh, Tim felt the same this morning, to have uh, a congregation <laughs> to speak to, uh, not just a camera. Uh, so it's such a blessing, isn't it, to be able to, to, to be together as God's people. Uh, well, we're going to consider tonight uh, in God's Word how God is the God of all authority. Uh, he is over all things. Uh, he hasn't um, fallen asleep uh, in 2020, uh, in spite of everything that has been going on. Uh, the God of Israel, we read, never slumbers or sleeps. He is sovereign over absolutely everything. And our first song this evening speaks of our God in this way. It says that he is the king of the universe.
It's easy for us uh, at the moment uh, in the UK with all the restrictions that we have to forget uh, what it's like uh, for Christians in other places where things are far, far more restrictive uh, every day, uh, more restrictive than we face. And so this evening I just want us to uh, think for a moment of um, Nigeria, which I was uh, reading about this week. Now some of you will know about Nigeria through the work of taste. Uh, but I don't know if you are aware um, quite how much intense persecution of Christians there is uh, in Nigeria. It doesn't make the, the news reports very often, uh, but the, the violence and terror against Christians in that nation is getting worse and worse. So I'm just going to read you a, a paragraph uh, from one article that I read uh, this week just to make us aware It says this, those of us who track religious freedom violations and Christian persecution agree with those who increasingly speak of another genocide. Murderous incidents are acted out with accelerating frequency, perpetrated primarily by two terror groups, Boko Haram and Fulani Jihadis. Tens of thousands of Nigerians have been slaughtered in the past decade, but their stories rarely appear in the mainstream Western news reports. And one of the problems that uh, Christians face in Nigeria is that the president of that nation, uh, Muhammadu Buhari, is from the Fulani tribe which is one of the groups that are murdering Christians. So our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are in dire need of our prayers. And I'd encourage you, actually, if you have opportunity this week, just to do a bit of research on what's going on there, uh, just to help you to pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in in that nation. So let's bow our heads and uh, let's pray uh, for them now. Heavenly Father, we've just been uh, hearing in song how you are the king of the nations. Uh, You are the God who is over all. And so you you know uh, what is going on uh, in Nigeria. And we can feel the frustration of restrictions at the moment in the UK, but we realize that we we just do not face uh, the intense persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters face in places like Nigeria. And we do pray for that nation this evening. 
Now we pray that you would protect your people. We pray that you would enable them to worship you freely and that in the midst of their suffering, you would be working in them, giving them faith in you and enabling them to be a witness in that land, even to their persecutors. We thank you uh, for stories we can read of Christians who have been preaching the gospel to their captors, even though it's meant that their captors have killed them. We are in a season of Advent where we think of your first coming and we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And we pray that thoughts of your return would give your people in Nigeria hope of a future that is secure in your hands. We pray for the president, Muhammadu Buhari. We pray that he and his colleagues would have a change of heart. We even dare to pray that they would come to faith in Jesus, even through the witness of your people. Would you bring this man to his knees in worship of Jesus? We thank you that you are the God who is king over the nations and how we can read in your word that the heart of earthly kings are in your hands. And we do also take the time as we pray for Nigeria to pray for the work of taste and we pray that you would provide for their needs at this time, the financial needs they have. Uh, we pray that you would give them wisdom about where to drill next, how to best use the resources at their disposal. And in the light of what we've been hearing and praying about, we pray for the safety of their workers and pray that in this nation where they work, they would shine brightly as a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you answer our prayers on behalf of our brothers and sisters, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the reasons we can speak of God as the king of the universe is because he is the creator of the universe. He made everything, uh, including you and me. We are his creation. And we can read of that in the first chapter of the Bible. So if you uh, turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 1, uh, Steve is going to come uh, and read us uh, the first chapter of God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing which, was, which the water teems and moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. As we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is this God who made the heavens and the earth. And before our next song, uh, I'd like us to read some words from the New Testament that link back to this passage uh, as it speaks of Christ uh, from Colossians chapter 1. So let's stand together uh, and we'll read together the words on the screen. And after we've read, uh, take your seats as we, as we, uh, we, we sing of this. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thank you. 
Well, if you would take up your Bibles again and turn to Matthew chapter 22. And this evening we're going to be in verses 15 to verse 22 of that chapter. Well, when you see uh, the pictures of these people, uh, I wonder uh, what you think. These are all pictures of uh, people who are in authority uh, in different places over different nations. And I guess what you think about them uh, depends a lot on your political views. But all of these we can agree as Christians, whatever you think of them, are all fallen leaders in a fallen world. All of them uh, are sinners. None of them are perfect. But all of them, the Bible teaches us, have been put there in the positions they're in by God. In the time of, of Jesus, this authority to rule over people Uh, rested in Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And one way that people knew of his rule over them was that it was stamped on the coinage. When people used this coin, they were reminded that they were ruled by Caesar. And in our passage today, this coin is used by Jesus to show the image of authority. And in showing us this image on the coin, Jesus teaches us how to respond to that authority. And I think it's a very um, acute uh, subject for us to look at at the moment, isn't it? So we're in a, a section of Matthew's gospel where authority is really a key word. Uh, We're in the lead-up to the cross where Jesus is going to die. And as we are moving towards that, his authority is being challenged. So if you remember, he's come into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, and going into the temple courts and turning over the tables. And both of those actions are statements of authority. He is claiming to have authority from God, God's authority. And the Jewish religious leaders we've been seeing feel that their authority is under threat. And so we've seen them ask Jesus where his authority comes from. And Jesus responded to their uh, questions with three parables that we've looked at over the last few weeks. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding banquet. And these parables were spoken against the religious leaders for their rejection of Jesus and his authority. And we read, if you look at chapter 21, verse 45, that they knew that Jesus was talking about them. And so now, after three parables, they respond with three debates, 
where the religious leaders try to undermine Jesus' authority. They basically interview him uh, a little bit like um, you would see a political interview today on the television, where the interviewer is trying to make the politicians squirm. That's their, their whole aim, isn't it, when you watch them? Or in Prime Minister's Questions in the House of Commons, where the leader of the opposition is trying to make the Prime Minister trip up over his words by asking pertinent questions. And what the the religious leaders here are trying to do, and we'll see that right at the beginning, is to trap Jesus in his words so that he will say something that will undermine his authority. And the first of these three debates begins... In verse 15 of Matthew 22. So let's read uh, of this passage. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They bought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. So this, this debate is about authority. In one sense, about Jesus' authority, but they ask a question about authority. Is it right to submit to Caesar's authority and pay this tax? And we're going to see that Jesus answers with a, a bigger perspective on authority. But first of all, we see in the beginning of this passage with the religious leaders a wrong attitude actually to God's authority. So Jesus has claimed God's authority, and in fact, we've seen that all through the Gospel of Matthew with his words and his works, and, and the miracles he's been doing. Uh, and, and, and when he made those, those statements as he comes into Jerusalem, he's not just being arrogant, he's proclaiming truth. I have God's authority. I am the Son of God. I am the promised King. And in response to this, we see in verse 15 the motivation of the Pharisees behind these three debates. Now, so far, uh, we've seen the religious leaders against Jesus in different ways. So in chapter 12 and verse 14, we read that there is a plot to kill him. In verse 33 of chapter 21, there is a direct challenge to him. And in verse 46 of chapter 21, we read that they looked for a way to arrest him. But none of those things had worked. He hadn't been killed yet. Uh, Their challenge didn't work. 
They couldn't arrest him because of all of the people. And so now they try another tactic. Perhaps we can trap him in his words. They want him to say something that will ruin his reputation, either with the Jewish people so that they'll no longer listen to him, or maybe even better with the Roman authorities so that they would arrest and crucify him. Now, many a leader in our world has been brought down by their words, haven't they? We, we see it all the time. And these religious leaders want to trip Jesus up so his authority is undermined. And so the Pharisees send their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. Now, this was a very unlikely alliance because the, the Pharisees were strict Jewish religious people who hated and resented the Roman uh, authority over them in their country. But the Herodians, they worked with the Romans. They benefited from the rule of the Romans. And so these two groups were at the opposite ends of this, this political spectrum. They were at opposite ends. Rome haters, Rome appeasers. They never normally worked together, but both of them rejected Jesus' authority, were threatened by it, albeit for different reasons, and their alliance shows the depth of hostility against Jesus. And in verse 16, this alliance comes up with what was no doubt a pre-prepared statement aimed at buttering Jesus up. Look at verse 16. Look at what they, they say. They call him teacher. And they say, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. This is buttering him up. Uh, in uh, Psalm 55 and verse 21, uh, David uses these words which really describe what's going on here. David talks of his enemies like this. His talk is as smooth as butter. Yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. That's what's going on here. But the irony is, of course, that the words are true, aren't they? Jesus is a man of integrity. He does teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. He's not swayed by others. And he shows this in these debates. But they are saying this to try and butter Jesus up, which is ironic because if he's not swayed by others, then he doesn't need buttering up, right? And so we come to their question in verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Now this was a, a, a good trap for them to set. And it explains the presence of the Pharisees and, or the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The imperial tax, or the poll tax, was a tax upon all of the occupied people of the Roman Empire. And it was one denarius per person per year. Now, a denarius was just one day's wages. So the tax wasn't a lot of money. But it wasn't the amount of money that the, the people had a problem with. For the Jews, it wasn't the amount but it was the coinage used to pay it. On the coin, there was an image of Caesar with an inscription which said this, 
Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And so on the coin, there was a claim to divinity with an image of that divinity, or supposed divinity, stamped on the coin. As far as the Jews were concerned, it was blasphemous. And not only that, it was a visible sign and reminder of the subjugation by Rome that they were under. So hated was this tax that in AD 6 there was a rebellion by a group of Jewish people that was put down by the Romans and many were crucified. So if Jesus said that it was right to pay this tax with this coin, well, his reputation amongst the Jewish people could be ruined. And, the, and, and those that um, were, were following Jesus and were patriotic Jews would, would just submit again to the authority only of the Pharisees. But if Jesus said, no, no, it's not right to pay the tax, well, then the Herodians would run back to their Roman friends and say, well, look at this insurrectionist, this revolutionary. And Jesus would be liable for arrest and execution for stirring up this kind of trouble. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is arrested, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, uh, one of the charges against him was that he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. Which wasn't true, but it was a charge. It was, it, this is a very uh, politically charged question here. It was a trap. Jesus couldn't say yes, he couldn't say no. So what was he going to do? Well, the first thing Jesus does, if you notice in verse 18, is he calls them out on their weasel words. He calls them hypocrites. Why? Because he knew their evil intent. He knew that they were not genuinely inquiring about this, but were using this to trap him. They were hypocrites in their obsequiousness towards Jesus in verse 16, and in their pretense of inquisitiveness in verse 17. And before we move on to Jesus' answer, it is worth pausing here just for a moment to examine our own hearts and wonder whether sometimes we respond to God's authority in similar ways. This happens when we, like hypocrites or as hypocrites, put on an external show of, of holiness when in secret we're not living for God at all. Or when we try to butter God up with our eloquent words of prayer. Also, we can reject God's authority with our own weasel words, can't we? We can come up with convincing-sounding arguments to excuse our sin. I was tired, or I was born this way, or it was their fault, they made me do it. Or we can try to make Scripture say something different to what it really means so that it suits our agenda. I remember one time um, uh, having a conversation with a young Christian girl who was trying to convince me that she can date her non-Christian boyfriend because unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 16 only applies to going into business with a non-Christian. 
and doesn't apply to relationships. That's weasel words to try and allow sin to take place using Scripture. Similarly, we can, we can use weasel words to try and make the Scriptures agree with a cultural narrative. So we hear things like, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, so how can we possibly say it's wrong? We hear those kind of things all the time. And we also reject God's authority over us, really, when we don't engage with the Bible at all. The big point here is that the the religious leaders, with their weasel words, were trying to undermine God's authority in Christ that was rightfully his. And they do this with the image of authority on the Roman coin. And as Jesus does answer their question, his challenge shows a right perspective on all authority. So in verse 19, Jesus tells the Pharisees to, to bring, him the, uh, bring him a coin. Bring him one of these blasphemous coins, which they went and did. And then we come to verse 20 and 21. Let me uh, read you those verses and We'll park here for a bit to to focus on what's going on here. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, if you uh, watch a political interview, uh, some of you might be uh, some of those kind of people <laughs> that shout at the radio, okay? Um, I can't watch it with people like that because I'm trying to listen to what they're saying. But some people love to, to shout at the radio. And one of the things people shout all the time is, answer the question. And the, the politician gives some obscure answer that is blatantly trying to just get out of answering the question bluntly. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he, is he giving, uh, effectively, a, a politician's answer? Not at all. No. Jesus is not doing that, but he is getting the questioners and us to think clearly about authority. And there are two kinds of authority here, and they turn on the word image or inscription. So he asks whose image is on, and whose inscription is on the coin, and the answer is Caesar's. Caesar's image is literally stamped on the coin, and so Jesus says that the coin belongs to him. Now, in the Roman Empire, this was literally true. In the Roman Empire, Caesar literally owned all of the coins, and when people had them, it was because he effectively lent it to them. And Caesar could call back those coins any time he wished. That is why Jesus says, give back to Caesar. It's giving back what is already his. And so Jesus' challenge here is to the attitude of the Pharisees to paying the poll tax. He tells them, you should pay it. 
He tells them that it is right to give what is due to those in authority. It's his coin, so give it back to him. And when a coin or a law is stamped with an authority, it is right that we give our obedience to it. So in our country, this is interesting, that when a law goes through Parliament and gets royal assent, it is literally, there is a seal or a stamp uh, that is on that law. And we're called here by Jesus to obey the law. And this theme of obedience to the, to the government is a, a common theme throughout the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament builds on what Jesus says here. So here's uh, some uh, verses, uh, which many of you will know. Uh, but Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's why we can say with those leaders at the beginning, God put them there. First uh, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. And Jesus himself said to Pilate, when Pilate said to him, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus said to Pilate, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So, God, so and it's amazing if you think about it, that God, God the Father gives authority to Pilate to crucify his son. And so Jesus speaks, and Paul and Peter spoke, these words to us on how we should submit to authority, and not only that, they're speaking in a very different political climate to us, aren't they? They're speaking in a totalitarian state which was uh, godless, unless you include the pagan gods that were worshipped all over the place. And so as we read these words, we, we, we don't have to agree with the government policies. We don't have to like the leader. We can even disagree with the laws. We can think that they are foolish and pointless and all of those kind of things. But we do have to submit to their authority and we have to pray for them and, in, as Timothy tells us, to give thanks for them because their power is given to them from God himself. Christians ought to be the best citizens in a society, abiding by the rules, even when we don't like them. And that's so, so pertinent, isn't it, at the moment? I think that's a, a great challenge to us. At least it certainly is to me. So we need to, to pay our taxes and stick to the speed limits. And at the moment... 
This is where rules like wearing face masks indoors and all sorts of other things come into play and a, and a whole host of other regulations that we don't like, but here we're called to, to submit. However, if Jesus had stopped with give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he would have fallen into that trap, wouldn't he? But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and give back to God what is God's. Now I want you to picture something here. I've, I've bought my, I'm a rich man today, I've got a 10p coin. Uh, I've got a coin here. And I want you to picture uh, you know, Jesus here with a coin of about this size. And he says, Caesar has authority over this coin. And then he says, you know, that Caesar's image is inscribed on this coin. It's stamped here on, on this little coin. What does God have authority over? God has authority over everything. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And we read in Genesis 1 that he made the world and everything in it. And so you can look at this little coin and say, well, that's about the size of Caesar's authority. Because God, he has authority over everything. This coin is even under God's authority. But God has lent that authority to Caesar. And here is the key, I think, to this passage. Here is where the word image fits in. Caesar's image is stamped on this coin. Where is God's image stamped? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our, what's the word? Image. In our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God's image is stamped on every single human being. And so the logic is this. If, if I've got to give this coin to Caesar, because his image is stamped on it, I'm to give to God my whole being and submit to him because he owns me. He is stamped on me. In Genesis 1, we see that humanity was made to rule God's world. And in the fallen world that we live in, we don't live in Genesis 1, God puts rulers in place to rule and order his world. In the verses we read earlier, those rulers are established by God. And we submit to God's higher authority in our submission to those lesser authorities he has placed over us. But our ultimate allegiance is to God himself whose image is stamped on us. And so all people who live are called to submit to him under his greater authority. It is what God is due as our creator 
with his image stamped on us. And this means submission to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And so Jesus says here that whilst it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, our obedience to Caesar is shaped by our obedience to the higher authority of God. And that is why we cannot obey an earthly authority when they ask us to do something which God says we cannot do. And so we come to the book of Acts and the apostles are told to stop proclaiming Jesus and they respond by saying, we must obey God rather than human beings. And so in that case, they were right to say to the lesser authority, there is a higher authority which tells me to do the opposite of what you're telling me to do. Caesar cannot ask us to disobey God, or rather he can ask, but we must say no. However, I think there is the proverbial elephant in the room when we come to this passage, isn't there? There is a question for us which sounds, I think, just a bit like the trap Jesus was set. Is it right for the government to to close churches? Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, it depends. I mean, if, if the roof in the church was about to fall down on the congregation and the trustees said, well, we're just going we're gonna to meet anyway, I think the local authority would be right to say, no, you're not using that building. And there are lots of laws that are imposed on us as a church that we do comply with, health and safety laws, child protection laws, tax laws, And in return, as a church, we uh, benefit from um, a lot of protection uh, from government and government actions in many different ways. I know you you might make a case to say, well, not so much recently, but we've looked at Nigeria. Okay, so we, we benefit from our authorities in ways as well. But this issue is not as black and white as we might like it to be. And Christians have been in disagreement over the last number of weeks, with some Christians choosing to rebel against the closure by meeting anyway, and others uh, complying. So I am not going to give a definitive answer tonight, because there isn't a definitive one. Uh, I'm not going to even give uh, my opinion, because I'm called here to... um, preach God's word from this pulpit, not to stand on a a soapbox. Uh, And so what would be more helpful uh, is to give some pointers on on what the Bible says about how we should think and pray in making decisions on whether things are right and wrong, with the understanding that neither Jesus here nor Paul and Peter elsewhere give us everything on a plate in how we make decisions. In fact, what, they, what, what, uh, what the Scriptures seems to do in a lot of cases is to give us principles so that we can use our minds and so that we can pray. If we had all the answers, our, our prayer lives would be much weaker, wouldn't they? 
So what I'm going to do, in, in what I hope is helpful for us, is give some pointers from a few places in Scripture that help us to think biblically about these things. And I've got six of them, but they're very, very brief, so don't worry, we're not going to be here all night. So uh, number one, uh, petition God before petitioning government. Petition God before petitioning government. So we are called to pray for those in authority. That's a clear biblical principle, isn't it? Pray. And, and, and it's easy for us all to say how we would do things better and how if I was in charge or if I, you know, I was an advisor, we can say all those things, but we haven't got the weight of responsibility of making decisions during this time. That weight isn't on our shoulders. God hasn't given it to us. And we can too easily direct our ire to authority and talk about how we would do things rather than petition our Father in heaven and ask him to give wisdom to the authorities and to give wisdom to us. So pray first. Secondly, saying what I've just said, it is right that we petition the government when we see things that are wrong. Even if we, can, we, we, we might disagree on whether something is wrong. It's not wrong to petition government. So, uh, for example, in the parliament, there are uh, Christians uh, in all sorts of different political parties. And they're going to disagree on things. And it's not wrong for them when, uh, to, to petition the government when we see something that's wrong. And biblically, an example of, of someone doing something like that is Paul the Apostle used his Roman citizenship to stop a trial that was unjust to appeal to a higher court in Rome. So it's not wrong to use our, our, our role as citizens to petition government to do things. That's number two. Number three, seek and listen with an open mind to political views you disagree with. The book of Proverbs contains a lot of Proverbs about seeking advice. But additionally, here's a proverb which I found really um, interesting and challenging. Proverbs 18.17 says this, In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Now, often we find and read media that agrees with us. And we, we live in a kind of echo chamber. So what we read is, is speaking back to us what we already agree with. In fact, social media algorithms work this way. Uh, the algorithms are designed to bombard you with stuff you want to read. Interestingly, for example, um, if, you, if, if, if I put in um, uh, lockdown into a Google search, what would come up for me might be very different to what comes up for you, all depending on what we've been reading before about the lockdown. And examples of, of Proverbs 18 verse 17 about this, these different views abound at the moment. So you can read of thousands of scientists saying, 
lockdowns are, are bad, and then another thousand or so scientists say, no, lockdowns are good, and all the in-between. And I think as Christians, it's good to, to see different views to inform our opinions rather than just assuming that we're right. I think we can glean that from Proverbs. Uh, number four, uh, with that in mind though, as Christians, we must remember neither a government nor scientists will save us. Government and scientists will not save us. In fact, to give some biblical balance to Romans chapter 13, which talks about obedience to government, read Revelation 13. Because Revelation 13 also tells us how Satan is behind governments influencing them. And so whilst being obedient, we also need to be wary and keep our eyes open to underhand things that go on. And even if, if COVID is eliminated, only Jesus has conquered death. We could have a, a vaccine that cures all sorts of different things, but our days are numbered unless Jesus returns. Uh, number five, God is a higher authority, and so much so that he even uses evil government policies to fulfill his purposes. So in the book of Acts, there was an evil policy there of murdering Christians in Jerusalem. A great persecution broke out. And in Acts chapter 8, we read how the church was scattered into Judea and Samaria so that the gospel spread to those places that God had told the Christians to go to at the beginning of Acts. God used that evil to do good and accomplish his purposes. And I have spoke to uh, pastors who have seen people converted during these months because their churches have been forced online, people that would never have come before. So even at the moment, God is still at work. God can use the current situation and is using it to accomplish good things. So we shouldn't be totally despondent and pessimistic God is at work even now in this. And then finally, number six, don't just dismiss as, as weak or over the top Christians that disagree with you. Work together. So Romans 14 would be a place to, to read about that. And linked to this, don't only spend time with Christians that you agree with on this particular situation. Avoiding those that have a different view to you in any political sphere as Christians just fosters resentment that damages church families every bit as much as any government restriction. But there is a bigger application that I want to draw out here as we close that is even more important than those things. And it came to my mind as I was studying it this week, and it's such a challenge to me, that Caesar's authority is this big, okay? God's authority is over everything, and so we need a sense of proportion at the moment, 
What proportion of our time is spent looking at media and examining restrictions from Caesar compared with looking at God's word and examining him and his ways and praying? What proportion of our time when we meet other Christians is spent talking about and complaining about the government and how bad we think they are as opposed to talking about the wonders and greatness of our God and how great and glorious he is? What proportion of our energy is being sapped by disappointment and frustration at Caesar rather than being filled and refreshed by the goodness of our God, which never changes? What proportion of our thinking is just frustration and annoyance at what we're not allowed to do, as opposed to using the means that we do have and the things we are able to do to, to, to have fellowship together and share the gospel? I know online is not as good as in person. I, I get that. I agree with that. But it doesn't mean that we, we, we shouldn't go online and use those means. But ultimately, the thing to remember from this passage is this, that, that Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And so let's give all of ourselves to him. And that includes our thinking and our time and our conversation. And he stamped on us. Caesar's authority is just stamped on a puny coin. Well, in verse 22, neither the Pharisees or the Herodians could argue with Jesus' answer, could they? I mean, how could they? The Pharisees would agree with God has a higher authority and the Herodians couldn't accuse Jesus of insurrection. And so they left just amazed at what he had said. And as we leave tonight... Abiding by Caesar's rules. Let's go with, with this in our minds. Jesus is Lord and he's sovereign over all. And let me challenge you to consider this. Are you giving everything to him? To the one whose authority is stamped on you? Well, our final song um, just helps us to think about these things. It reminds us of the King of Kings and in the words we read how we lay everything at his throne. Oh, you know.
Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And Jesus is our King. Amen.